For Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, November 8th, 2018. This is episode 79, The New Flip Phone. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I am Jason Snell, your host. I'm joined by two wonderful guests, web editor at Texas Standard, author of iOS Access for All, and the host of Parallel right here on Relay FM. Shelly Brisbane is back. Hi, Shelly. Hello. Good to have you here. We're going to talk about technology things. And also, uh, a returning guest, digital media reporter at The Hollywood Reporter, Natalie Jarvie. Natalie, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, well, you know what we do here. We're gonna you you both you both seen this this show before. Uh, we're gonna talk about the most interesting tech stories of the week, as picked by me, and of course also picked by download producer Stephen Hackett, who is right here. Hello. Well, I'm he- I'm not there. I'm here. I like to think of you as my um, intelligent agent mm. and voice assistant. Um, that's from another time zone. A, that's a segue uh, to talk about Samsung's developer conference. Wait, are you comparing me to Bixby? <laughs> that is not nice. I think you're way better than Bixby. But again, low bar, low bar. That's true. Bixby that's really did true. dominate. That's the voice assistant from Samsung dominated much of the uh, the keynote at Samsung's developer conference. They have developer integration. So like skills for Amazon or Siri shortcuts, third parties will be able to expose data and services to Bixby. But... Um, um, Bixby's reputation is not very good, and I don't think we need to make that any worse than we already have today. So let's talk about what grabbed all the headlines. A folding smartphone! Ooh! Unveiling uh, this thing. Well, okay, that's maybe too strong a word. Uh, Samsung uh, showed a thing and offered very few details about the thing. The stage lights were dimmed to hide the design, probably for good reason, because it looked like they were holding a shoebox. Um, the bezels were super chunky. The software wasn't really shown off either. But what we did see was a kind of candy bar, very, very, very thick candy bar phone that folded open like a book to reveal a a little tablet inside and a promise that Samsung would be ready to produce foldable screens in the coming months. Uh, Google announced uh, support for foldable devices is coming to Android and developers will have a standard way to build apps for products like this, no matter who it's coming from. Now, this is not a real phone, but uh, is our foldable future nearby and are, are, are you interested in a product? like this. Shelly, what do you think? So it's interesting. I feel like there needs to be some corrective to phone screen size inflation, but I don't know whether this is it. My favorite detail was the bit about the lights being dimmed so that you could sort of see that it existed, but not what it was. And I'm open to the idea that a foldable phone will someday be the thing that deals with what I perceive as phone size inflation. And I'm also open to the fact that this is not it yet. It is a proof of concept. It is a developer uh, platform upon which people will write what they will write. But it's it's kind of too early for me to be super cynical and snarky yet. But uh, I don't know. It may crash and burn or it, it may rise. It's 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 a long way off, though. I don't think we're going to see a phone for at least a year. I wonder how much more disorienting Samsung could have made it. Could they have, like, mm. they fly, they raise the house lights right in the faces of the audience, but they dim the stage lights and they maybe put in some, some like, theatrical fog 
<laughs> and then there's like, oh, you can. And then, then a magician comes on stage and produces it and says, is this your folding phone? And then it disappears again. It was a little bit like that. I mean, obviously, this is not. Uh, the real question is, is this is this um, something like I, I saw several people were like, oh, yeah, folding phone, sign me up. But I looked at this and said, well, if it's an inch and a half thick. I'm not really interested in it, even if it is a convertible kind of thing, because because I have been spoiled by the race to thinner and bigger, but thinner phones. And this thing is 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 large. At the same time, there is something to be said for having a kind of small screen that you can pop open to something larger instead. Like the, it's the new flip phone, which is uh, that you flip it open to get the big screen. Um, Stephen, do you you know, is this intriguing to you or, or do you think this is snake oil and it's not going to happen for years and nobody's going to want a, a, a two inch thick phone that folds? Yeah, I don't think anyone wants the thickness, but you know, I'm as listeners know, I'm a a fan of the biggest iPhone Apple will sell me. That'll be the one I buy. And the Max is pretty big. It's it's not so big for the way I live my life. I, I can still take it with me, but I know that's not true for everybody. But if you trade, you know, like I guess uh, you know, like the X Y axis for the Z, where it's like, yeah, it's it can fit in my pocket, but it's two inches thick. Then like, I don't think people want that. And, you know, a funny thing has happened with with a lot of technology, but especially smartphones where as they become thinner and thinner, you know, if you pick up like a, like an, even like something like an iPhone four, the thickness is always what jumps out to me. It's like, man, like they've really shaved down over time and whatever Samsung showed, uh, like you said, sort of like in the misty haze of mystery, it had a little chunky. So if they can get that down, I think it's, I think it's more viable, but I think that's sort of a deal breaker, uh, a deal breaker for now. But yeah, like if I had a phone the size of like an iPhone uh, 10 and then I could fold it out and have like an iPad mini, like, yeah, like that would be cool, but it sort of seems like it's a bunch of uh, smoke and mirrors right now. It is going to depend on the hand feel, whether it's just thickness per se, or whether it's a, a perception that it's hard to hold on to both folded in and folded out. Because obviously, when you, you put that thing in your hand, and it's awkward to, to hold, especially for somebody with small to medium sized hands, uh, that's going to not be popular. I also wonder, is that the sort of thing they're going to be able to scale to different sizes? Or is it just going to be? And again, these questions all feel super premature, because even Samsung was like, don't don't get your hopes up. It's not happening tomorrow. Right. Uh, so I I feel like some of these questions I'm, I'm waiting and seeing, but it's not something I'm saving my pennies for right now. Natalie, how do you feel as a as presumably a smartphone user? If you're on a feature <laughs> phone, you can let you can let us uh, don't admit it. Actually, don't admit it to anyone. Uh, <laughs> with the idea of having you know being able to have a bigger screen without having a bigger uh, thing in your pocket necessarily is that an is that intriguing as somebody who uses this stuff? You know, I am not a tablet user, so I, no, it's not really very exciting uh-huh. to me at this point in time. I mean, I, I would have to really figure out what that use case would be in my life. But for now, having a phone and having a computer, those two things work for me. And I don't, I don't necessarily need something that's an in-between. Now, maybe something like this for like, I don't know, traveling, you could pop it open, watch some, a movie or something like that. That could be kind of neat. But outside of a use case like that, I can't really figure out how I would use this in my daily life at this point in time. Yeah, I guess my thought was if you could have something that was smaller in your pocket and then when you when you took it out, you you know, you popped it open and it was a bigger screen, it might be a solution for if we really do believe and and this is the mystery 
of the phone market, there is so much driving people toward bigger phone screens. But I'm not entirely sure where that ends. And does that end with, um, you know, the size of today's phones? Or is it literally like the bigger you can make the screen kind of infinitely until you can't hold it anymore, the better? <laughs> and if that's true, then, I mean, that's the that's the great thing about the folding display is that you could end up with, keep in mind the cost of this too, you're going to end up having a folding display, which would be super expensive. And then presumably what they showed is another display for when it's not folded. So, you know, I, I see the I see that there's some value here in having it be fitting. Literally, it fits in your hand in your pocket, but you can also open it up and have a kind of two handed experience. I don't know. It, it is a fascinating idea. The idea of having a tablet that is also a smartphone and it's kind of a hybrid device. But I don't know. We've been hearing about the cool thing about this. I mean, let's say it. The cool thing about this is they showed it, and it looks like it's actually something that kind of works, which is. It, it, this has been a, a, well, in the future, there'll be foldable displays for a long time now. And this seems like the most confident that anybody's ever been that they might actually come to market, that Samsung is confident. That's cool. That's very cool. I mean, it definitely, even in the, the slight demo that we got, you know, it, it looks cool. Uh, it's always fun to see innovations in these spaces. Uh, it's just, you have to figure out how it's going to practically right. come into your life. Yeah, it might cost a lot. It's going to be thicker. It's going to be, yeah, you know. It, it, uh, anyway, don't rush out. Don't put, start saving your pennies now for that new foldable, awesome Samsung phone that'll be out in six months because it's probably not going to be practical for a while yet. Um, oh, the, at this uh, at this conference, they also showed off One UI, which is a rethinking of the Samsung Android skin to make using larger phones easier. It pushes content down to the lower parts of the screen. That is good. It uses the top for large titles and graphics that aren't necessarily part of the UI. There's a new night mode for OLED fans out there and more customization controls, including tinting the whole UI to match the color of your device. Oh, Samsung never changed. They've always got... It sounds like it's a simplified UI, which is good because uh, one of the knocks on, on Samsung stuff is not their devices, but that some people don't love the uh, the extra junk that they put on top of Android. So... Um, we should. We got. We got a lot to talk about today. So maybe we'll take our first break now. Let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by Away. Away has the perfect gift for anyone on your holiday list. What do they make? Suitcases. Smart premium suitcases. Your luggage won't cost more than your plane ticket, but these are awesome pieces of luggage. One of the things you need most when you're traveling is more battery. When you buy an away suitcase, you can charge all your devices when you travel. Both sizes of their carry-on feature USB ports with a battery large enough to charge your phone five times from a single charge. Go to awaytravel.com slash download now and browse away suitcases featuring premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and still super light weight you have 10 different colors to choose from in five sizes two adult carry-ons a kid's carry-on a medium and a large they cut out the middleman so you can get first class luggage at coach prices away suitcases have a patent pending compression system which is great if you're an overpacker along with four 360 degree spinner wheels once you get those wheels you'll never go back to a two-wheeled suitcase i'm telling you this from personal experience away's carry-ons are compliant with all major u.s airlines while still maximizing the amount you can pack they have tsa combination locks built in they've got a removable washable laundry bag so you can separate your clean clothes from your stinky ones i use that all the time i have one of these that away sent me i liked it so much we bought another one for my wife 
wife, we both have away suitcases now. They're great. I've been traveling a lot this last month, and I've been taking my away suitcase with me, and it has been fantastic. Now, they also have a lifetime guarantee, by the way. If anything breaks on your away suitcase, they will fix it or replace it for life. There's a 100-day trial, no questions asked return policy, and free shipping on any order within the lower 48 states of the U.S. This season, everyone wants to get away. You should go to awaytravel.com slash download. Use the code download at checkout. You'll get $20 off of any suitcase. That's awaytravel.com slash download. And use that code download for $20 off. Thank you to Away for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, our next topic is Apple and Apple results and some new Apple products. Apple's financial results came out last week, including, uh, it was a record quarter. They seem to always do those now. They hit uh, almost exactly 10 billion in services revenue, which is a record high, and that services category grows pretty dramatically. Also shipped a bunch of new products, iPad Pro, Mac Mini, MacBook Air, and the reviews are out for that. And they changed something about their um, their accounting, which is they're going to stop telling us how many units of Macs and iPhones and iPads they've sold. They're just going to tell us the revenue numbers, which is an interesting thing, although when you think about it, not too surprising given Apple's focus on revenue growth over unit growth. Um, wanted to start with the services number, though, because Apple for about three years now has been touting its services number and how it's really driving growth in the company by improving services. And this includes iCloud, it includes Apple Music, and it's going to include the Apple Video service as well, which is expected to debut in 2019. Uh, Natalie, what did you what do you think of when you look at Apple and this growing services number? What what you know? What's your thought about what they're doing? Yeah, I mean it's it's incredibly clear that Apple needs to diversify its revenue as the, uh, you know, sales of if its products kind of doesn't start to slow, but that maybe people are holding on to their iPhones longer because they are more expensive. You know, so they need to find other ways to to bring in, in money. And so to me, it makes a lot of sense that they're focusing on services. It's something uh, back in 2016, they said that they wanted to double their services revenue by 2020. And it certainly seems like they've, uh, they've you know, been doing, they're, they're on their path to do that because $10 billion is is a pretty sizable mile milestone for them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, going to be interesting to see how the upcoming uh, TV service fa- factors into that. We, we still don't know a lot about how um, they're going to roll out those products and what that will look like. And it's sounding like there's a good chance that they could actually give away a lot of this TV content for free. So I don't know that it necessarily immediately bolsters the services revenue. Uh, maybe it does encourage, you know, more people to, you know, get into the Apple ecosystem through buying a, you know, Apple TV product or, you know, subscribing to Apple Music or other things. But it, it, that may take a while to actually uh, start to impact uh, the services uh, bottom line. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether the uh, cost of rolling out that TV content and the service is going to uh, revenue is what it is and they're going to have to diversify services revenue within services Mm -hmm. so that you you have more than just uh, iCloud and iTunes that they're doing now but obviously rolling out that TV service is going to cost is already costing them a lot of money is going to cost a lot of money so it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for that part of services revenue to become noticeable and are they going to break that out probably not they haven't done that so far with the other components of services and it seems like they're going the other way in terms of giving you more visibility into the components of their business. Yeah. What I think could be really interesting to watch would be, and and this is, you know, just a hunch, but 
you know, it would be smart for Apple to maybe tease people with a few of these big name TV shows that they've got coming, put them out for free on that TV app that now suddenly is on everyone's phones and, uh, you know, get people hooked and then start putting some stuff behind a paywall and start bundling it into Apple Music or iCloud. Um, no better way to get people to pay for it than to give them something and then, you know, uh, take it away and, and tell them they got to pay to, to get access to it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what that looks like, uh, hopefully in 2019. Yeah, Apple Music launched with a six-month intro for everybody. And it's still, I think, a three- or six-month intro if you have never been before. They, they do that. But, you know, when they launched it, everybody got it basically to start you signed up and you could cancel and and then they wouldn't charge you um the bloomberg report the reports are unclear about this and who knows whether that's because it just hasn't leaked or whether it's because the apple hasn't decided yet but i have a hard time imagining that they will give too much of it away because with tv unlike music sort of like if you give if you spend millions of dollars tens of millions of dollars on a season of a tv and then just drop the whole season for free it's it's gone right it theoretically you're getting people excited about the platform and 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 they want to uh maybe see more or another season but you've given away the whole season so i i'm not sure i believe that they'll give like whole seasons of stuff away but i think there has to be a strategy where they get people excited whether they're dropping you know half a season of some of their shows and then you know you've got to keep paying to to watch the rest that when it drops again a lot of uh, streaming services are doing that where they're breaking their their season seasons into into pieces and dropping them uh, in different time periods instead of just dropping all 13 episodes or whatever at once i don't know because i ultimately this is the question right and i'm glad that i'm not the person at apple who has to decide this because they're spending you know a billion dollars on content and they're trying to build this huge business and you have to decide what do you give away and where do you draw the line and where do you tell people that they need to pay because ultimately they do want to raise that services revenue number which means they want people to give them more money than they're giving now i don't know um, it's a, that's a tough question. The other interesting thing would be whether or not they, they make this content exclusively available on, you know, say an Apple TV, uh, you know, that could certainly help, you know, bolster sales of, of that product line. Um, and that could be another way that they're looking to get a return on, on their investment that they're putting into this content. Uh, it's, it, you know, we'll have to kind of wait and see what, I yeah. honestly think that they're still figuring it out. At least from my reporting, I think that that seems to be the case. Is right that we see all these different, uh, all these different sort of like vague ideas of what Apple's going to do, and that that sounds very much like Apple. Apple has a lot of vague ideas about what to do, and they haven't necessarily made it all work yet. I would imagine that everything will be in the TV app, which means it will be on iPads and iPhones as well if you want to watch there. But um, it may be a way for people for Apple to sell some more Apple TVs too. Moving to the 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 tech side of it, I mean, uh, new iPad Pro, new MacBook Air, new Mac Mini. Um, they've shipped. The reviews are out. Shelly, are you intrigued by any of these products? Are you? Are, have you bought something yet, or are you just waiting and seeing? I, I haven't, and mostly just because the life cycle of products that I have and need don't demand any of those things. But the the MacBook Air is interesting to me, just because I mean that's that's a cool product, and I I am not an iPad lifestyle person. So were I to get a highly portable device right now, it would probably be a MacBook Air, and I I think it's a good upgrade, and it is as much 
much personal preference. I have no beef against the iPad Pros. Those upgrades look good. Uh, the Mac Mini, I love the idea of just don't need one right now. Uh, it, it is interesting, of course, that, uh, that both the, the Air and the Mini are sort of catch-up products. People have been waiting for those a long time. And so I think some of the happiness that people feel is that they they're they're finally getting what they asked for but now they're like well okay but that's not a new thing that's what the thing i've been waiting for for a while so it'll be interesting to see how how well they do with them um and the ipad pros uh i i think it they they did the right thing with them. They fo- they're focusing in the right place. High prices notwithstanding, because they're really trying to get creatives to either switch from or use switch from computing platforms or uh, use tablets more in their creative uh, endeavors. Witness Photoshop and the like. Uh, so I think all of those upgrades made sense. I'm just sitting here with my nice new red iPhone 10R because I am a member of the iPhone middle class, and and that's just the way it is for me right now. Stephen, how many things did you buy? Uh, I don't want to talk about specific numbers. <laughs> Stephen, I'm not asking not for unit total sales, revenue. Stephen. I just want unit sales from you. I don't want to know how much you spend. I just want, want to know how many you bought. Yeah, we picked up a Mac Mini. I've got a home server that was on its last legs, and it showed up last night. It's actually uh, my afternoon project just to get that get that set up. Uh, I did pick up the the big iPad Pro. I'm not a big iPad user day-to-day, but I... I'm looking to change some of that and I want to really kind of dive into this and I had the 12.9 a long time ago and then and then downgrade to a smaller size and basically thanks to people like Jason and Mike Hurley uh, talking me into the big one being the one true the one true way so it, the, the hardware is incredible we've we've spoken about this in other shows where the software is still is still a little frustrating at times and Apple needs to do more there to make it more useful to, to more types of people. But um, yeah, you know, it's been an exciting fall. It's like there's been like this slow, steady drip of new Apple hardware basically for like two months now. And I'm kind of relieved it's over because it's exhausting to cover, but they've been busy. And I think if you're either a Mac or an iPad user or both, there's lots to be happy about going into this holiday season. Yeah, it is exhausting, by the way. Nobody needs to play a violin for us people who write and talk about this for a living. But boy, it's what a what a fall. <laughs> I'm ready for the holidays is what I'm saying. There's some Apple has, uh, you know, Apple's holiday quarter, speaking of financial results, is always the biggest. They've uh, said that this will be their biggest ever because, of course, it will be, isn't it always? And... Uh, they know it and they plan for it. And that's why you have seen them rolling out products, either having media events or product review drops on embargo or releases at their stores almost every week for the last like eight weeks. So it's a, it's a busy time. But uh, 2019 is going to be bananas, like uh, we were talking about with Natalie. Uh, that video thing, like they have been spending for the last year plus now. They have high-powered executives, and they've been making deals in Hollywood, and they bought like more than I think it's almost like two dozen TV shows, and spent more than a billion dollars. Probably, it is going to be something to see. Whatever they decide to do, uh, let's take another quick break. Let me tell you about our next sponsor. It is Text Expander from our friends over at Smile. Text Expander multiplies your team's productivity by making up-to-date shared knowledge available instantly. Look, you've got shared information in your organization. Even if you're in a two-person organization like mine, you have shared knowledge. You have a way that you respond to somebody, let's say, or an answer to a certain question. And one of the amazing things about Text Expander is that you can put those in a shared repository. Everybody has access to them, and they have access with just a couple of keyboard 
type, not even shortcuts, like letters. You type a couple of letters, boop, out comes the text that's the answer to the question that you just got asked. And it's the same for everybody. And if it changes, you change it in one place and it's available everywhere. So your text written and edited by your best writers is available to everybody in your organization. And it's accessible with just a couple of keyboard shortcuts. It's available on macOS, iOS, Windows, and the web. Create snippets for anything you're wasting your time typing more than once if you've ever typed something and thought oh my haven't i answered this question 10 times before haven't i typed this sentence a hundred times before you need text expander it will change the way you work and leave you more time to do the rest of your work instead of retyping the same thing over and over again that is madness for big teams, Text Expander supports single sign-on and grouping accounts, makes getting set up a breeze. It's great. If you're a writer, if you're on a sales team, if you're a teacher, you're a lawyer, so many ways that Text Expander can improve your productivity. Don't put it off. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast right now to learn more. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. Thank you to Text Expander for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Now, before we move on to our next topic, the story you might have missed, something that may have flown under your radar but is worth mentioning, Amazon's cashierless stores. Oh, we talk about them here a lot. They haven't swept the nation yet. They're just in testing. But the retailers in the U.S. are paying attention. Sam's Club is opening a similar test store in Dallas. 7-Eleven is testing a new mobile checkout process called Scan and Pay. With the app, shoppers scan their purchases and pay right from their phones via Apple Pay, Google Pay, or a traditional debit or credit card. Like Sam's Club, 7-Eleven is piloting this in Dallas with 14 stores. Hey, listeners in Dallas, go get a Slurpee and buy it with your phone and tell us about it. Uh, the chain operates 65,000 locations and 7-Eleven says 50% of the U.S. population lives within one mile of a 7-Eleven. I have two within a mile of my house. Replacing cashiers with an app would cost a lot of people their jobs. Critics of the pilot program say also, you know, you do need somebody there to make sure that somebody doesn't shoplift the Slim Jims. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm all <laughs> for the idea of, uh, in general, of being able to pay without talking to a human being. I'm actually okay with that uh that's maybe just me but i'm okay with it let's move on to another uh, full-on topic it's amazon amazon put a bunch of cities in north america on notice it was looking for a home for hq2 its second headquarters where it said it was going to uh, because seattle had a limited pool and a limited size of uh, uh in order to fill the buildings and who are the people they're drawing from they wanted a second location um locations all across the country made pitches including giving you know tax breaks and promotional support and all sorts of things bending over backwards because there'd be so much of an influx of money and talent if amazon made its home its second home there well the company promised it would announce the winning city by the end of the year and rumors have been circulating about the shortlist it sounds like there will be two H- hq2s which one will be hq2 and which one will be hq3 i don't know split between long island city new york which is actually part of queens it's right next to roosevelt island uh, right across the river from manhattan and arlington virginia obviously very close to the washington dc area uh, critics have called foul as the number of jobs and the amount of capital spent will now be split in two uh, many people wanted to see it land in a city somewhere between the two coasts helping spread the high-tech jobs out more evenly instead this is uh, a case where if these rumors are true amazon is going to uh, new york and washington dc two very large 
uh, cities and also apparently two places where Jeff Bezos has homes. Interesting. Uh, what do, what does everybody think about uh, Amazon's HQ2 thing? We've talked about it here before. Uh, it seems weird to have all of this and then have them say, we're actually going to do two of them and it's going to be in New York and D.C. Shelley, what do you think? We at Texas Standard covered the HQ2 sweepstakes because we had two cities, Austin and Dallas, that were in the running. And the most interesting thing to me about that was that Dallas was very gung-ho, as a lot of the cities were. They made a lot of big presentations and the PowerPoint leaked and we talked to a lot of city leaders who were super excited and Austin my my dear hometown was just sort of meh because <laughs> they really felt like there was a lot to not recommend Amazon Austin has a huge problem as some of these other cities do of uh, housing unaffordability and there were studies that said Amazon would increase that our transit system is uh, nobody's idea of a good one and so the city just kind of didn't go all in and a lot of the, the complaints about what Amazon has now done come from those cities that not only just got excited and made pitches and and courted Amazon, but gave Amazon a lot of information that can now be used by them from a competitive point of view. And the the cities feels feels many of those communities and cities uh, feel like they were used and duped and that Amazon had planned to do this all along. And I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it does seem like this giant hype train that we saw coming has, has landed in a way that is even worse worse than if uh, they had chosen one city, if they had chosen Denver, which was one of the early uh, leaders in this in the sweepstakes, uh, and just moved on. And now they're splitting it, which doesn't seem ultimately all that efficient. I mean, you can make arguments for why Washington or New York would be a good place for HQ2, but the idea that they're splitting it and will now have three headquarters, I, I it, it just seems, it, it seems messy. It seems really messy mm-hmm. to me. Well, also, I mean, at what point are these just satellite offices and not really a second headquarters or a third headquarters? I mean, why not just call it what it is? They wanted to open up some other satellite offices. Fine, do that. But why this whole year long, you know, come bid for our business kind of, you know, dog and pony show if if that's (laughs) not really what this was all about? Yeah, it's very weird. What is it, Stephen? I I I feel like we've talked about this on this show before, too. I think this is representative of our our trust level with Amazon that everybody starts to say, was this all just a game, a scheme on Amazon? Did mine data about all the cities in the U.S.? (laughs) Yeah. You know, Amazon is is such an interesting company because they they are – really loved by customers, but then they're also really like looked at sideways, like the second you step out of that conversation. And uh, yeah, it, it does feel like, you know, a lot of cities put a lot of effort into doing this. Uh, and the promise was, hey, all these jobs, all this capital ex- capital spending, and now it's going to be split does feel like it's a a little bit of a, of a, a bait and switch. Uh, my bigger complaint, though, is just the locations that seem to be chosen that there's a lot of a lot of people who would fill these jobs outside of the coasts mm-hmm. and that big tech companies continue to ignore for the most part the middle part of the country like like uh you know us hanging out here in central time and uh you know I'm not even advocating it to come to my state even but I just I think there's opportunity for companies to make big uh meaningful investments in places other than you know New York or California. And uh, I just am a little disappointed by that. 
Yeah, I think some of the places that we're advocating for Amazon between the coasts, we're thinking about it, and I, this is probably a bad example to use because they don't always work out this way, but when the Olympics comes to a city, in addition to all the money that, that's expended, what those cities typically get is infrastructure going forward. And so there were a lot of places, I think Dallas and Austin included, but some of the other cities as well, that were thinking, well, if Amazon comes, we're going to have to beef up our infrastructure for their benefit, even though we give them crazy tax abatements, it's ultimately going to benefit uh, the citizens. Of, of the area that they're already there, not to mention new jobs and jobs in fields that don't have as big of a f- footprint here as they do in New York and Washington. Yeah, I had this thought. I mean, I think a larger tech industry thought, too, about the idea that you've got so much in California and then, you know, yes, on the coast and in Seattle, there, there are a lot, too. But especially in California, where the cost of living is so enormous and there's a housing crisis. And in fact, in the election, the, several uh, initiatives passed that were all about trying to address the housing crisis in California. It's a huge issue. And yet you what you don't see is uh, companies. Well, you do see some of it, but not as much as you would think going to places where the cost of living is a lot less because they're afraid that they're not going to be able to hire good people there. And it's it's frustrating because I've said, you know, to several people who talk about, I, I was always an advocate for like, why do we even have uh, at my old job uh, space in downtown San Francisco? Why, why spend the money on that when so much of what we do could be done remotely? And if you need a physical location, why don't you put it somewhere like Denver where they've got a big airport, everybody can fly there. It's cheap, relatively speaking, to live there. It's still a city. It's still got universities like there's you could do it um but i do see why amazon might be doing this which is seattle is a great city but i think in the mind of the united states as a whole it is about as remote as you get in the 48 contiguous u.s states it's way out there and i think amazon wants to be more central and i think jeff bezos wants to be more central and uh washington and new york are power centers in the united states and in the end i wonder if that's the choice but it is frustrating because it's like it's not like new york and washington dc were uh really hurting for people and jobs and i'm sure it'll be a great they'll both be great locations but it's hard not to look at it and think that this is about being more visible in the places where power has accumulated in the united states for a company that feels like it's kind of at the backward end of the u.s and i'm not saying that that's actually true and that seattle is backward i'm saying that from the perspective of the huge percentage of people who live in the east coast and have you know money and power in the united states seattle does seem far away and kind of like a backwater. And I wonder if that was going into the the judgment here too. Hey, as a proud Seattle native, I just got to say, I don't know about it being totally in the backwater, but I do see your point. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't think it is either. I'm And I'm a West Coaster, so I don't think it is either. But, you know, every time, and maybe it's part of it is my sports thing, but like every time I see anybody going to play in Seattle, they're like, oh, and then we got to fly all the way to Seattle. And it's like, you know, it's just right there. But I think perception wise, right, Seattle is seen as this kind of like far off place if you're if you're in New York or or. or DC. I don't know. Sure. I, I think it's unfair, but I wonder if if I'm just Jeff Bezos, I'm like, ah, you know, I gotta be there. I bought the Washington Post. Let's go, right? Well, to your Let's point, go. I have long had DC at the top of my list of guesses of where they would end up for this very reason. Yeah, you know, Jeff Bezos now owns the Washington Post. He has a large, expensive home in DC now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly 
a good place to be if you want to be lobbying the government. It makes a lot of sense for Amazon to be there. So yeah. I and Northern had- Virginia is growing rapidly. That is one of the most rapidly growing and uh, and uh, yeah places in the U.S. So it's not too surprising uh, long island city a little bit funnier the people in in that part of queens are like oh my god there's only the one subway line and the subway's breaking down already and you're gonna put amazon stuff here but yeah yeah well you know uh we'll see what happens i i wanted to mention too uh before we move on a little a little bit more about amazon retro is in i guess i when i was a kid i really loved the sears wish book you get the big thing and it's got like you just page through it and there's like all the different presents and you can you literally could tear out pages and circle things and say this is what i want for christmas well amazon is going to take us back to those days apparently a report saying that the company is mailing its first ever printed holiday toy catalog to millions of people uh, called a holiday of play it will include qr codes to quickly load any item in the catalog on amazon's website and for the holiday season amazon has expanded free shipping allowing all amazon customers in the u.s to enjoy free shipping with no minimum purchase amount applying to hundreds of millions of items on the store now i'm gonna go to shelly first because shelly is the person closest to me in age on this panel right now uh (laughs) Uh, does this story give you flashbacks to the to the old days of the like the sears catalog and stuff like that a little bit although my favorite catalogs were uh the best products catalog and the radio shack catalog but that's just my nerd nerd Uh, yeah that's pretty good too yeah, I think this catalog will be super popular in my my sister's home. She is a Prime member. She has four children, each of whom has their own Amazon wish list, and we could not shop for Christmas without those wish lists. So I suspect that that catalog will be passed around and fought over in that household, and I don't want to be there when it happens. You know, I mean, we joke about junk mail here, um, and I'm curious for the two two people who are a bit younger on this panel. Um, I, I used to work in print publishing, and... And print does have some sort of appeal, but I do wonder if this is a uh, generational thing where uh, there's a generation of people who are like, oh, a catalog from Amazon, that might be fun. And, an- and another generation who are like, what are they doing? <laughs> so, uh, Natalie and Stephen both, <laughs> what, what, what do you think when you hear that Amazon's going to print a 70-page catalog and mail it to everybody? Listen, I may be a millennial, but I still grew up with catalogs also, and I also work for a magazine. So, I love it. I mean, personally, Yay! I'm a tactile person. I'd rather see it you know, really get to look at it, you know, make a decision. I used to have, you know, the toy catalogs that would come to our house. I would circle the things I wanted and hand them to my mother and say, this Uh is what I want for Christmas. So absolutely. The funny thing is, is what I, what I find so fascinating about Amazon with this kind of push that they've made recently into, you know, physical stores and, you know, now catalogs is, you know, are they just conceding that, you know, hey, catalogs really actually serve a value and, and, and help boost sales? Or is this like some sort of a nostalgia play on their part? Mm. And it's kind of like, oh, we know people used to love their catalogs. Uh, you know, that, that's, I, and I don't know the answer to that, but, but I, I'm curious what they're thinking about uh, as well, they're they going to get data decision. right sure they're going to know exactly with those qr codes they're going to know exactly what sales of what kinds of products come from 
print. And that's going to give them more data that if they do it again, they're going to be like, okay, now we know. We know who ordered and we know what they ordered. And, and you know, there may be a place for print and they're going to they're going to zero in on exactly what it is. If there is a place, I'm, I'm sure they'll find it. But print is also more browsable in a random sense. If you know yes. what you're looking for in Amazon, you can find it easily on the website. But if you just pick up a catalog and have no idea you want a big wheel or a puzzle or whatever it is that they <laughs> right. have photographed beautiful pictures of, mm-hmm. and there's no uh, downside to scanning that QR code and putting it on your wish list. I have one nephew who, who just does that. Everything he sees goes on his wish list, and then he has to. I have to wait for him to prune it before I pick something for him. And, and especially if you start with toys, I mean, it, it, the, the nostalgia thing probably has something to do with it, but I feel like it, it just makes sense whether a kid is going to pick up a tablet with pictures of things they might want or whether they're going to pick up something print in print. I don't think the kid cares. I think the kid sees, the kid points, the kid hopes that they get that on Christmas morning. It's more curated. It's more editorialized, right? Yeah. You mm-hmm. can help yeah. also sway the uh, you know decision-making on the kinds of toys that you're showing these kids and you know putting in front of consumers and, and encouraging them to buy, which is interesting. And there's probably some sponsorship and partners go- partnerships going on. So you have certain manufacturers that are buying space, you know, stuff like that. And if it's anything like the Sears catalog back in the day, and I lived in a small town where, um, and this is actually similar to sort of how we view online now, which is we didn't have a Sears. We had a Sears catalog store. So you couldn't see it the stuff that was you couldn't see merchandise right it's very much like browsing online where you get like a picture of it and you're like okay uh, well you couldn't get your hands on it and um they would they would do these lavishly photographed i think now having worked for a magazine for a couple of decades how expensive those things were because they they would pose like a whole set of like kids playing with different toys with each one having label for the number of what product it was that you could get and like i try to imagine amazon doing that and I, th- I think this seems super retro and weird on one level and on another level it's like this is kind of brilliant because print does have power there are still magazines there are still catalogs that are very successful in fact catalogs are i think still way more successful than magazines are to this day because they do have that power and and, and they provide a way to bring products to you in, in a context and in gl- with glossy photography and stuff like that that the, the web doesn't doesn't provide Stephen, are you ready for your catalog i get so much junk mail i do not want this coming into <laughs> my home spent all his money on Apple products. Yeah, that's he true. That, yeah, that's true. The kids are getting a Mac Mini, a, a Mac Mini box and an iPad box. Oh, that's Christmas. nice. Nice. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's all right. So we've got we've got one person who bought a tablet, and we've got another person who doesn't have a tablet and likes catalogs and magazines. So th- th- I feel like we've run the run the spectrum here of. Uh, of, of Don't stereotype about this. those millennials now. Yeah, I have, I have not said the word millennials at all. Oh, I just I'm meant sorry. the youngs and the olds <laughs> is all I meant. Anyway, <laughs> let us take a break and tell you about our last sponsor. It is App Optics, a DevOps tool from our friends over at Solar Winds. Folks at SolarWinds want to break down the divide between applications and metrics. They want to bring together dashboards, alert monitoring, and management all into one place. You've already got too much to do. The last thing you want to do is be navigating a ton of interfaces. App Optics is monitoring that you can afford to run everywhere. 
Every minute spent finding a problem is expensive. With App Optics, you'll know if you're having an outage, reduce outage time, and get the visibility to solve it faster. You'll also get a bird's eye view across all your resources on a single pane of glass. It's super quick and easy to drill into the details. They offer a ton of other features like built-in integrations for over 150 cloud-first applications, instant visibility into server and infrastructure performance, robust custom metrics dashboards, an automated APM request tracing. All of this ends up to faster troubleshooting. It is software-as-a-service hosted, easy-to-manage, budget-friendly, and that's why 275,000 customers already trust SolarWinds for the performance data they need. App Optics lets developers and ops teams get back to doing what they're great at, which is delighting their users. This stuff is so important. Monitoring visibility helps solve problems faster and prevents problems from happening in the first place. Gain visibility into your apps, into your infrastructure, and catch performance issues before your customers do, because that is bad you want to catch it before they do you can learn more try it free for 14 days just go to appoptics.com slash dl because this is the download podcast and i've never really called it the dl but that's the code so do that appoptics.com slash dl i am delighted by that url thank you app optics for supporting this show and all of relay fm All right. Our last big topic today. Natalie's here. I didn't want to let this go by. Some of the latest digital media news. This is what she covers at The Hollywood Reporter. You should go to HollywoodReporter.com and read all of her stuff. There's a a tech link in the nav bar you just click that and you, you get all their all their great stuff um comcast this uh, this blew me away comcast is reportedly developing a new set-top box okay cable company has a box who cares it is for people who don't subscribe to comcast tv but only their broadband service it is a cable box for people who have cut the cable cord but still have broadband through xfinity uh, you can do pay-per-view you can run apps for netflix and other services like that and apparently you will have the opportunity to upgrade to a comcast video package i'm fascinated by this um because it seems like this is the logical next step for all cable companies i know apple and charter announced that they're going to build a an app uh, i'm not sure if it's out yet that it runs on the apple tv that literally just gives you access to the Uh, all the cable offerings of Charter, but it just all happens over the internet streaming um, instead of via the old method of of delivering TV. So, Natalie, is this inevitable that every cable company is going to finally say, look, (laughs) if you you just want to stream things and you're using our network anyway and paying us for it, that's fine. We'll help you do it. Absolutely. I mean, listen, these cable companies are, you know, I'm sure looking at these trends of cord cutting and concerned about the future of their business. So if there's a way to get someone who is, you know, already subscribing to Comcast broadband, but no longer wants Comcast cable to keep them in that network and, and keep them, you know, buying your, your devices and, and paying a subscription fee. Absolutely. Of course, they're going to want to do that. So not surprising at all. It will be very interesting to see how all of the set top boxes kind of respond to this, you know, to your point about uh, the deal that Apple did, you know, it, they're certainly not going to want to seed ground in this space. So it will be an interesting um, kind of battle, I think we'll start to see between uh, the the cable providers and, and the tech 
companies, the streaming services. It's like Xfinity makes an app on my that I have on my iPad that is fantastic mm-hmm. and lets me watch live TV and it lets me do get, have access to their uh, their uh, I think pay per view stuff too. And it's it's very good. It basically will turn my iPad into a TV. And I have that thought, which is why is this not on the Apple TV? Yeah. And I think it's because they're they're not entirely sure about how they want to go about a, addressing like devices that are literally just set top boxes and how they you know they kind of want you to get your tv from a traditional box right now and they're afraid of this but obviously they're still exploring this because it does does feel inevitable right that they eventually traditional tv delivery is just going to stop and everything's going to be over the top even if it's from xfinity they'll just have you stream it instead of you know they'll want to reclaim the bandwidth they use for all of those channels and it just it's just a question of does it happen in five years or ten years or two years or something like that yeah Um, absolutely i mean it's interesting you know you you talk about wanting to have the xfinity app on your apple tv i'm sure comcast is thinking well if you're watching something on a television why aren't you just watching our cable channels then so that's the um you know, that's the hurdle that they have to jump through. And Right, uh, but I have a second TV and I don't want to put one of their boxes in it. I want to just, I have an Apple TV hanging off of it. But they, they're, that, that's like, mm, no, you really should have one of our boxes then. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Shelly, what do you think about uh, this? Are you, are you a traditional TV or are you a cord cutter? I don't remember. I'm a I'm a cord cutter and have always felt, but but I have also talked a lot about uh, how I feel like it's it's difficult for a certain segment of people, particularly who haven't focused on what which of those tech boxes do what, whether they buy a Roku or an Amazon stick or or Apple TV. I, I think it's there's a certain segment of the population, and and frankly, it probably is older uh, that would be happy to have their cable company give them a or have somebody give them a box that gives them easy, straightforward access to television and, and doesn't require the uh, amount of choices and the frankly the amount of fussing around with uh, TV provider subscriptions and oh I want to watch this particular show but how do I get to it which app do I have to install and so I think uh, I also feel like uh, from the Comcast side and from cable company side they really need to play in this space because they can't make deals with one and not all of the tech the providers of the tech boxes and they also just they need a backstop in case those devices aren't available or in case the tech companies find a way to make it harder for cable companies to get onto their boxes it, it just seems like it's a sensible thing for them to do i am happily not a comcast customer mm. i have a I, I actually it's interesting I, I wonder whether this will come to people in in my situation i have a regional cable company that provides my internet and we cut the cord for for cable from them but i don't know whether uh, the mid-sized companies that are not the charters and the Comcasts are going to go this route or whether, I, I mean, I've got my Roku and my Apple TV and all the little boxes I need, uh, but my mom does not. So uh, I'd be sort of curious to find out whether this is something that Comcast or somebody might license out to smaller providers or whether hmm. that's even a thing. And then I also wonder about the cost because a lot of people started cutting the cord for cost reasons. They've probably figured out as they've acquired streaming subscription <laughs> services that their costs are increasing. Yeah. But I, I wonder as a baseline uh, what people are going to pay leaving out things like on-demand and pay-per-view and stuff like that. Fascinating stuff. This is, I think the TV transformation of the TV industry is one of the most uh, amazing and how technology is transforming it is one of the most interesting stories in media and technology right now uh it's it will we'll keep an eye on it I, another angle here that i wanted to bring up uh, there were a couple of shutdowns in the digital media space and i'm curious what 
people think that might mean um, for the future of digital media. So Filmstruck got shut down. It is uh, Warner Media streaming service for classic movies. It was shut down by the new owners, AT&T. Um, Defy Media, and Natalie wrote about this in The Hollywood Reporter, they had 75 million YouTube subscribers across a bunch of different brands. Uh, and previously, they owned Screen Junkies, which they sold earlier this year. Um, that also, they, they basically have shut down the company and are, are I think, selling off uh, those those uh, existing YouTube brands. Uh, these are very different stories in many ways, but they point to something that I think is interesting. It's how this landscape is evolving Um Filmstruck, it seems like this might be uh, AT&T saying, we know that people aren't going to subscribe to 40 different niche services, and we want to come up with a new, uh, bigger service that we could want to put all of our content into. Um, and, and I feel like consolidation of uh, all of these different services is a thing that's going to happen because nobody, you're, we're not going to have 20 different $8 a month services be wildly successful. Um, uh, Natalie, what, how did you read the film struck shutdown? Yeah. So I think you have to look at it in the larger context of uh, the time Warner, um, acquisition and, you know, what's kind of been going on, uh, with that company for the last few months before Filmstruck was shut down, uh, Warner media also shut down another service that they owned called drama fever. That was incredibly right. popular for accessing all the popular Korean dramas and other international content. That was shut down. Then a week or so later, Filmstruck was shut down. Uh, Warner Media has also shut down its uh, digital video arm. Uh, it was called Super Deluxe. They were making like experimental Facebook interactive shows and and short form YouTube series and and that type of thing. All three of those businesses were shut down, you know, in quick succession. And and I think you're right that you know. If a lot of studies that have have uh, looked at streaming services uh, over the last few years have have found that most people are going to subscribe to about three or four services. You're going to have your Netflix, you know, then maybe your Amazon or your Hulu, and then you've got room for one or two others. And uh, so Warner Media has said that they're going to launch a streaming service uh, in the in 2019. And uh, my expectation, although they're not saying yet what kind of content will be on this service, my expectation is that we will see some of the Filmstruck catalog drama fever content potentially pop mm-hmm. back up in in that service in a bundled uh, offering that is a better price point for consumers and that makes more sense for um, for Warner media yeah it makes sense that that this is like you said people aren't gonna aren't gonna subscribe for more than maybe four services and a little thing like Filmstruck. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to go away. I think Filmstruck will return in some form that catalog, probably from somewhere else inside Warner Media. But it is far uh, too beloved to go away yeah, entirely. Right? I think, and that Criterion right? collection that they had access to is incredibly important uh, mm-hmm. to film scholars and and people who love movies. So I'm sure that people will be able to continue to get that content in some way eventually. It just won't be through Filmstruck. I w- I was talking to somebody about how there's a lot of older content that uh, used to sort of uh, fluff up the catalog at uh, Netflix and Amazon that it doesn't have a lot of value because they, everybody is paying for new content. And that's that's another piece, not just old movies, but old TV shows where I feel like uh, in the end, they will find a home because there is a niche there that will be served by having them. But uh, who knows? I feel like we have to get there right now. We're in the arms race of new content. And Well, uh, and that, that catalog is very important. 
important. I mean, Netflix obviously doesn't share a lot about viewership, but you've got to believe that Friends is one of the mm-hmm. top most streamed shows on Netflix. I mean, just anecdotally, the number of people who either rewatched the whole series. I mean, I did that in the last year or young people who discovered my, it yeah, for the my, first time. My daughter is 17 and she has watched all of the all of the Friends episodes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So so that is incredibly valuable content to a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon. What's interesting is that Friends is Warner Brothers. So most likely right. whatever uh, streaming service Warner Media launches in the next year will have friends. So uh, what I think part of what we're seeing with the uh, the content, the original content arms race, is that Netflix saw the writing on the wall a few years ago that eventually they would lose access to the, these catalogs. Totally. I mean, Disney has already pulled its catalog. Certainly Warner Brothers appears to be doing the same. I'm sure others will follow suit. You know, and so Netflix figures that, you know, now as House of Cards comes to an end, suddenly now that's back catalog content for them. And, you know, they don't care if someone watched House of Cards from the moment it was on uh, Netflix or whether or not someone in five years finds it and, you know, picks it up and watches every single episode. So they have to they're now essentially creating their own uh, back catalog content, so to speak, uh, in this, you know, kind of crazy uh, acceleration of original content production. So a couple of interesting things about Filmstruck from my perspective, and I will, will cop to being a classic film fan, and I spent an hour talking with some guests on my podcast, Parallel, a couple days ago about Filmstruck, and uh, we obviously uh, bemoan the loss of that service. But the thing about Filmstruck that excited me when it started was that it was a backstop against uh, the fact that Turner Classic Movies was a cable is a cable channel without commercials. It just seems like it hangs out there, ripe for the pick and right for the, the taking away, and that Filmstruck seemed to me like Warner Media's attempt to real, to uh, recognize that streaming was a thing that they had to get involved in and, and do so heavily. And uh, unfortunately, that service, as currently constituted with Criterion Collection and Turner Classic Movies content, is going away. And that content or some subset of it probably will end up on a Warner property. Warner has had all sorts of trouble with that catalog of content. First of all, I should say Warner owns a ton of back catalog, especially in the movie space, because they've acquired the movie libraries of companies like MGM, RKO, obviously Warner Brothers itself. So they control an incredible amount of that back catalog. And there is a very dedicated group inside Warners that has done everything they possibly could to restore, release on DVD, release on streaming. And they've continued to have efforts fail in that regard. I was happy to see relatively recently that a lot of that content has ended up on iTunes. Now, the former Warner Archive Instant Service uh, has gone away, but there's a whole lot more classic stuff on iTunes that you can buy or rent it that, that didn't used to be there. But Filmstruck was an opportunity for people who really cared about that stuff and who probably weren't necessarily buying other subscriptions or weren't buying as many of them to make that choice. And and I, I agree and I understand that we have a certain uh, limitation in terms of the number of subscriptions any num- one human can support. I think the issue with Warner and with, frankly, a lot of the legacy movie studios that have lots of that bad catalog is that they haven't found a way to... Uh, they have these incredibly valuable assets, assets that are valuable to, unfortunately, a relatively small group of folks uh, that to to great extent are languishing. Warner's is one of has been one of the best in terms of making that back catalog stuff available. Paramount, Universal, Fox have all screwed this up. And so to see Filmstruck go away, uh, it, it just doesn't bode well because I, well, for the reasons I've stated, but I feel like if they can do a multi-channel streaming service that has a classic and, a, and or an art house called Arm, I think that'll be great for consumers. But if it's just, oh, on Saturday nights, we have a 
classic movie in some sort of larger uh, streaming environment. That's that's not actually what would happen, obviously, because it's not a time-based thing. But uh, it, without some sort of dedicated commitment to back catalog and the curation that both Filmstruck and Turner Classic Movies have made possible, uh, I, I think it, it's it's not a good day for film fans. Yeah. A little passionate about it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. This is. I, I feel like there's another shoe to drop, but you're right. In the meantime, Filmstruck is shutting down at the end of the month, and that's and that's it. Or has shut down now. I can't remember. It's it's you know it's, it's the end of November. It, it's the end yeah. of November. Yeah. So it's it's over. Um, before before we wrap, uh, Natalie, uh, this Defy Media story. Yeah. I mean, when I when I read it, I read it as that there's a really weird middle ground between giants of of digital media and individual essentially individual youtubers whether they're truly individual or they built a, a very small company around what they do i'm thinking of people like in the tech world it's like mkbhd somebody like that is wildly successful but is more kind of a person who does this um and defy looked like it was a company that's trying to be in the middle trying to be kind of a mid-level aggregator of a bunch of different popular youtubers and they couldn't make it work so is that what's your read on on what happened there yeah, you know, Defy is a really interesting use case. They uh, formed a couple of years ago through the merger of Break Media, which was known for a bunch of kind of like, you know, dumb bro humor uh, and uh, Alloy Digital. And together they formed and they kept their Break Media brand. Uh, they, they had acquired Smosh, which was a YouTube channel started by two guys they sold their YouTube channel to Defy Media. And uh, over the years, Defy was able to put resources into this channel and help make it more of a brand as opposed to just a YouTube channel. So the two founders, uh, Ian and Anthony, they, uh, you know, they started to kind of take on a, and a bigger role within the company and, and focus more on kind of the creative direction of the Smosh brand. They hired other talent. There were multiple shows. Anthony actually left Smosh uh, last year and was able to kind of say, all right, I did what I could do with this brand. It's no longer just about me. I'm going to take a step back and go do something different. Uh, and, you know, so then outside of Smosh, Defy also had Clever, which was kind of, um, you know, celebrity lifestyle type content. And then uh, they also had Screen Junkies, which was for, you know, movie fans. And so they kind of built this brand or this, this company off of these, you know, segmented brands. But they were never as large or as scaled as like a Maker Studios or a Full Screen or an Awesomeness TV. And I think that's where they struggled. A couple years ago, all, all those big companies sold. Uh, you know, to varying degrees of success. And, and Defy was never able to do that. And now suddenly here, a couple of years later, you're seeing this, this kind of lack of, of heat and excitement and interest around this digital media space. Uh, certainly the buyers aren't there in the same way they were after, you know, Disney bought Maker. And, uh, you know, there's also been a lot of issues for companies trying to sell digital advertising as long as, uh, Google and Facebook continue to dominate this space. It's going to be hard to be a real player unless you have significant scale. So I think they got caught up in all of that and that's what hurt them in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, now what's unfortunate is that you've got this company that worked with a bunch of these YouTube creators. They did have a small multi-channel network where they would help YouTube creators, um, 
you know, aggregate their views and, and sell, you know, advertising on their channels. And, uh, you know, then they also had these bigger brands like Smosh. And so now the question is, is what's going to happen to all of those creators who were working with them? And so from my reporting, it sounds like Defy has kept a small group of executives on board to try to sell their big brands. So they will hopefully find buyers for Smosh and Clever and some of these brands. Uh, but a lot of these YouTube creators who were part of their network are kind of like now left out, um, on their own without a lot of support. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate for the, the creative community in the, in the YouTube space. And, you know, really just too bad that it, it happened so abruptly. I mean, it literally, uh, one day they were there the next day they were gone, uh, you know, citing market conditions and, you know, that's, that's never going to leave a good taste in people's mouths about, uh, no. you know, their, their demise there. So it's interesting. Tough growing pains happening for uh, big YouTubers too. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Will, this uh, great stuff. Uh, we are about done. I want to, before we go, I like to end on a happy note uh, with something we call the fuzzy puppy update. Listener Nick sent this in as a, what he called a fluffy puppy story, which is really only one third of the actual words of the segment, but we figured it out. We know what Nick was going for. He pointed us to a story in the Telegraph in the UK about a British army veteran who was working as a private contractor clearing explosive devices in Syria. Underneath a slab of concrete in an exploded school in Syria, he found four dead puppies, but wait, and one that was alive and whimpering, which is how he found them. He took the puppy, he adopted her. She stayed with him all day, every day, as he traveled around clearing IEDs in Syria. He said the dog's presence really helped with the stress of working in an active war zone and with his PTSD from his military background. He went home to the UK for a short trip and his contract was canceled, but... A military charity called War Paws arranged to get the dog shipped first to Iraq, where she was vaccinated, then to Jordan, where she was quarantined, and finally back to Europe, where she was reunited with the man who found her. And now they are together in the UK, and she recognized him as soon as he said her name. It's adorable. So thank you, listener Dick, for this fuzzy puppy update. Fluffy puppy story. Anyway, we have reached the end of download for this week. Uh, Natalie, where can people find the stuff you do? Yeah, you uh, gave it a great shout out earlier, but you can find all my work at thehollywoodreporter.com under that little tech tab, or I'm at Nat Jarv on Twitter. And Shelly, where can people find your stuff? I'm Shelly on Twitter, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and why don't we just direct them to relay.fm slash parallel, where you can hear my guests and I talk at length about Filmstruck. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Stephen Hackett, thank you for putting the show together, as always. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. Until next week, we will keep watching those headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody.